and welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Monday, February 6, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is Residents Move into Dubuque Long-Term Care Center's New Wing by Benjamin Fisher. Administrators of Sunnycrest Manor, the Dubuque County-owned long-term care facility, announced this week that the first phase of its long-sought renovation is complete and the first 10 residents are now in rooms there. Leon Gooden is a resident of one of those new rooms created by Sunnycrest's renovations. On Friday, he said his new accommodations are quite nice. He has big plans to begin guitar lessons and has a Fender Electric and amplifier plugged in near his window. There, he will be able to learn the songs of his favorite band, Kiss, with a clear view of the forest surrounding Sunnycrest Hilltop property and plenty of room to move. Construction crews began work on Phase 1 of what will be a $40 million renovation at Sunnycrest in early 2021, once COVID-19 cases dropped in the community and health regulations allowed them to do so. As of January 20th, 10 residents were able to fill the new rooms. Some, like Jim Rondeau, had occupied rooms in the two-floor wing before its renovation, so they had a sort of homecoming. This is just a lot nicer, Rondeau said. Compared to this, the last room felt like a cracker box. There's plenty of room to move around now. I get a north-facing window so the sun isn't blasting in all the time all times of the day. They did a great job with it. Administrator Dan Adama said, Our east-west renovation has been a positive and a negative, she told the Dubuque County Board of Supervisors at a budget session last week. Our census is down because of that, but the first phase is done and we're moving on to the second phase. The facility's census, or resident, headcount is one factor that determines Sunnycrest revenues. Finance Director Emily Gosh said demand has climbed back from from lows during COVID-19 pandemic restrictions. COVID caused census in nursing homes to go way down. Now it's back again, she said. We will look to fill those beds as much as we can to capacity, so we will see that there will be a need for sure. During the budget session, Supervisor Ann McDonough accentuated the need for long-term care space in the community, but also sought a thoughtful pace also sought a thoughtful pace of filling them. We know there's a care center in Makokota that is abruptly closing. We see pent-up need too because of Unity Point Health Visiting Nurse Association contracted for public health work in Dubuque County, has 75 seniors and disabled folks on their waiting list for in-home health assistance, McDonough said. I want to be collaborating with you about what census would be best before we just accept more folks. Gosh told supervisors that Sunnycrest census is 56, but that once all three phases of the renovation are complete, it would be 77, its capacity before work began. Crews are already working on demolition in the renovation's second phase, pulling steel out of the second story from the outside with machinery on Friday afternoon. Eterna Adama 
I'm sorry, Adamus said Phase 2 is expected to be completed at the end of October, with the smaller phase to be completed by the end of March 2024. Sunnycrest is facing other problems resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic, which made building its budget for fiscal year 2024 difficult. Namely, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has been reimbursing nursing home services based on 2018 cost estimates since last year. Gosh explained that CMS normally sets reimbursement rates every two years. Fiscal year 2018 was a rebasing year. Fiscal year 20, because of COVID, they decided not to rebase, she told supervisors. So we are being paid rates based on fiscal year 2018 costs. Historically, the supplement is not drastically different because our revenue goes up as our costs go up. But it is usually two years behind, and now it is four years behind. And, Gosh said, Sunnycrest's expenses have gone up $140,000 in the year since they last presented a budget request to the supervisors. But Sunnycrest staff requested no more county funding than in the last fiscal year, other than wage increases, which will be considered at a later date. Sunnycrest requested $2.64 million in county contributions for fiscal year 2024, toward a budget of $13.79 million, which would be offset by $11.05 million in other revenue to Sunnycrest. And from the BizBuzz Monday column, Area Bank Marks 75 Years by Kaylee Reese. An independently chartered bank that began in Joe Davies County, Illinois, is celebrating a milestone anniversary. Apple River State Bank is marking 75 years in operation this year. The bank currently has one location in Hazel Green, Wisconsin, and five locations in Illinois, Apple River, Elizabeth, Hanover, Scales Mound, and Warren, as well as a Galena location operating as First Community Bank of Galena. I think it's kind of an impressive accomplishment with maintaining our local independence and community bank philosophy through all these years, said CEO Joel Holland of the 75-year anniversary. At one time, there were 11 independently chartered banks in Joe Davies County. Now, there's only one. Holland said Apple River State Bank began in 1948 in Apple River after the community lost two bank locations during the Great Depression. The bank has always made a profit, Holland said. It has always had net income since 1948. There have certainly been some ups and downs, but it has always been able to generate a profit, and I think it comes from the support received from all the communities. First Community Bank of Galena was the bank's second location and opened in 1995. That was probably one of the defining moments in the bank's history, Holland said. Then... The additional offices came along the way, and they've all added to the growth and prosperity of the bank. The Warren office opened in 1999, the Scales Mound office in 2001, and both the Elizabeth and Hanover offices were purchased in 2008. The Hazel Green office opened in 2019. The 8th Apple River State Bank location will open later this year in Darlington, Wisconsin, at 207 Wells Street, 
Holland said. Remodeling is underway with hopes to open the branch in the spring. Over the years, Holland said the local communities have shown a lot of support for the bank, and some families are in their third or fourth generation as shareholders. I think 75 years is a great accomplishment, and we're certainly looking forward to the future as a community-owned bank, he said. More information on Apple River State Bank, including all locations and their hours, can be found at communitybankgalena.com. And turning to the Love That Last column, Holy Cross Couple is Still Laughing by Michelle London. Dateline, Holy Cross, Iowa. It is a guarantee that anybody who spends time with Roger and Donna Sweeney will laugh a lot. Their youngest child, Dawn Comer of Dubuque, said that has always been a hallmark of her parents' personalities. Through good times and bad times, they always had a sense of humor, she said. Roger, now 80, and the former Donna Schmidt, now 79, have been married for 59 years. They were both born and raised in Holy Cross and still live there in the home where they raised their family. Daughters Chris Reese and Dawn, and sons Steve and Brian. Now, Roger and Donna have 11 grandchildren, and they also have one great-granddaughter. She's not spoiled at all, joked Donna, adding that having their great-granddaughter living in the area is an added bonus. Roger and Donna met at what was then Holy Cross Leo High School. Roger was a junior while Donna was a freshman. We knew of each other's families, Donna said. It's a small town. Our families belong to the same church, but we never really met until high school. The occasion was the school dance. Donna noticed Roger right away. He was very tall, she said, and he was good-looking. What else do you need? Roger said he immediately connected with his future wife. We just clicked, he said. We had a lot of the same interests. Donna's parents said she couldn't date until she was 15, which happened not long after she met Roger. But then there was another rule. She could go only go out on a date once per month. I always thought that was kind of dumb, Donna said. We saw each other every day in school. The couple's first date was the Rosalind Russell film Auntie Mame at the Grand Opera House in Dubuque in 1958. Did I have my 48 Dodge then? Roger asked his wife. Yeah, he thought he could dazzle me with his 48 Dodge. Donna laughed. The way Roger proposed also hints at the couple's quirky sense of humor. We were driving down the road, and I just handed it to her, Roger said. I said, here you go. He's such a romantic, Donna said with a laugh. The couple got married at Holy Cross Catholic Church on October 26, 1963. They lived for a short time in Farley before returning to Holy Cross and building their home. Roger drove a bread truck for Troush Bakery for 12 years, then moved to Swiss Valley Farms, where he retired after 22 years. Donna worked as a hairstylist for a while and then began working for the town of Holy Cross as the town clerk, a job she retired from after 28 years. I really enjoyed that job, she said, grant writing, keeping track of everything, greeting the public, which wasn't always easy. I liked the challenge of getting grants and seeing things grow. Daughter Chris of Ryan said she knows her parents worked hard while raising their family. Mom had four of us in five years, she said. It was a lot, but we had a lot of fun, too. 
Dawn said she and her siblings all attended Catholic schools through high school, which meant many extra working hours for her dad in order to pay tuition. He took all the hours he could get, she said, and he worked nights. I really appreciated that when I got older. Roger and Donna have done a lot of traveling during their retirement, including trips to Austria, Germany, and Ireland. They have particularly enjoyed traveling in the U.S., indulging their love for country music with many trips to Branson and to Nashville, Tennessee. They have visited every state in the U.S. except Hawaii, although they doubt they'll visit there. We're not beach people, Donna said. The couple also belonged to a classic car club in Guttenberg and enjoyed cruising with the club in their 67 MG convertible. They no longer have that car, replacing it with a yellow 2001 Ford Mustang they bought for their 50th wedding anniversary. My mom has all these fancy little hats with rhinestones that she wears on those rides, Dawn said. That just tells you how much fun they have together. While they are no longer active members of the club, Roger and Donna said they still have friends from those days that they'll meet for a meal and an evening drive in their vintage cars. We'll meet for dinner, then drive to the country club in Guttenberg for double bubble, Donna said. You know, two beers for the price of one. And, of course, at our age, if we have two beers, we're done, Roger said. We're home before dark. Chris and Dawn said their parents are very involved in the church and in the community at large, serving as coaches for sports teams and as board members for a number of organizations. Family was very important, Chris said. We always ate supper together. We went to church every Sunday. They taught us to work hard and to get involved in the community. But they always laughed together, and that was fun. They loved being together and being with us, and we love being with them, and we still do. That togetherness has continued with the next generation. They're the number one fans of all the grandkids, Dawn said. They go to all of their school events and games if it's within driving distance. Donna said the key to her and Roger's long partnership started with friendship. We're friends, she said. We enjoy each other's company. After 59 years, we're going to have some rough spots. We had layoffs and strikes and tough times. That wasn't easy, but we just kept plugging along. Disagreements between the couple are rare. We just talked things through, Roger said. We've never gotten so pissed at each other that we didn't talk for days. Donna nodded and then smiled. Never, she said. Maybe just half a day. Turning to page two, the Dubuque and Tri-State page, the top story is HUD Issues Grants for Self-Sufficiency Programs by Joshua Irvine. Funding for a federal program meant to help housing choice voucher recipients achieve financial independence will be used for outreach to participants, the city's top housing officials said last week. The $181,000 received from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development for Dubuque's Family Self-Sufficiency Program will help in part to attract more Section 8 participants to the program, Housing and Community Development Director Alexis Steger said. Recently rebranded as Next Level Savings, the program offers case management and limited financial assistance to help households pursue higher education and home ownership and cease to rely on federal assistance. 
Under the city's program, households work with a case manager to establish intermediate and long-term goals to be achieved over a five-year period, with an option to extend for another two years. Any increase in the family's contribution to its rent, under Section 8, households pay a set percentage of their rent, while the housing authority pays the other portion, as a result of a higher earned income results in a credit toward an escrow account that can be assessed, accessed upon completion of the five-year goals, meaning families can graduate with tens of thousands of dollars in savings. The Eastern Iowa Regional Housing Authority, a subsidiary agency of the East Central Intergovernmental Association, received $336,122 for its Family Self-Sufficiency Program. Director of Housing and Support Services, Michelle Schneier, wrote in an email, The Housing Authority currently enrolls 150 families in its program. Outcomes from successful completion of the program have included home ownership, increased education and college graduates, improved credit and financial stability, stable employment, moving off rental assistance, and overall increase of self-esteem and self-worth, Schneier wrote. A major push for next-level savings will be working with participants to improve their credit, Steger said, with the ultimate goal of making them into eligible candidates to purchase a home. One of the primary goals in home ownership, Steger said, but a secondary goal before home ownership is to get residents banked and bankable. HUD awarded $109 million toward existing family self-sufficiency programs at public housing authorities across the country, as well as another $6 million to new programs at local housing authorities and private owners who operate public housing projects. Under rule changes in May, any adult member of a household may now apply for the program as opposed to a head of household while eliminating a cap on savings that had been in place for higher-income families. Dubuque has operated the program for roughly a decade, Steger said, though the city has not received federal funding every year. The last time the city went without federal support was in 2020, owing to a deficiency on the city's application it was unable to correct due to stricter HUD protocols that year. Years that we didn't get the grant, we still have to help families, but we can't do as much outreach, Steger said. The next story is Darlington Educators Discuss Immigrant Schooling by Eric Hogstrom. Dateline, Platteville, Wisconsin. Darlington teachers held book study sessions focused on the memoir of an actress and used concepts generated by the book to improve their strategies for reaching immigrant students. Liz Burkhardt, Kaylee Christ, Mariah McMullen, and Molly Rice discussed how they used Diane Guerrero's memoir, In the Country We Love, My Family Divided, to improve their instruction of immigrant students in their district during a panel discussion Sunday at Platteville Public Library that drew about 20 people. Just being able to meet with staff about the book and have open discussions about our students and their needs was crucial, Rice said. Burkhard works with English language students in elementary school grades at Darlington. McMullen teaches fifth grade students. Rice teaches fifth and sixth grade students. And Christ is an English language learning teacher at the high school. 
the teachers have experienced increased numbers of immigrant students in recent years. I'm originally from Darlington, Chris said. When I graduated from high school, there may have been one Spanish-speaking student. Now, at the high school, I work with 25 students that are at that level one, the lowest level of English proficiency. That's not counting the students who are now fluently bilingual in both Spanish and English. The Darlington I know has changed dramatically since I graduated. Orange is the new black actress, Guerrero, was 14 years old the day that her parents were detained and deported while she was at school. These are the struggles that some of our students are going through, McMullen said. Born in the U.S., Guerrero remained in the country and continued her education, detailing the challenges she faced in the memoir that Darlington teachers used in book-based discussions to address the needs of their own immigrant students. It's an amazing, inspirational story about overcoming challenges, Burkhardt said. The Darlington teachers drew upon Guerrero's experiences to view their students' needs through a different lens. Discussing the book helped us to take a step back and not jump into judgmental mode if a child is off-task or they didn't do their homework. Burkhardt said the book helped teachers understand that there might be challenges beyond language that impede an immigrant student's education. Maybe we don't know this kid's whole story, and maybe there is something going on at home that I don't know about that is impacting their learning, Burkhardt said. Maybe I should explore that a little further. Chris said the challenges faced by immigrant students are broad. Everything is new, she said. We first think of the language, but all of their friends are new. Their school lunch is new. All of the systems of the school are new. Everything is new on top of the language barrier. Chris said that discussing Guerrero's book has helped teachers develop ways to make connections between teachers and students and students with each other. At the high school, one of the things I have noticed is that there is not a lot of opportunity for social language development. There aren't three recesses like in elementary school, she said. Everybody is feeling angsty and wants to fit in, but when you don't know the English language, it's not easy to do. We work really closely at the high school with our Spanish teacher to connect immigrant students with a buddy, to have someone to be a language partner. The next is the News in Brief column. Police. Four injured in two-vehicle crash at Bluff and West 9th Streets. Authorities said four people were injured in a two-vehicle crash Saturday in Dubuque. Monica A. Goble, 41, and passengers Autumn R. Chapman, 21, and Portland E. Goble, 16, all of Platteville, Wisconsin, were transported by ambulance to Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center, and Marshall J. Hughes, 33, of Dubuque, was transported by ambulance to Unity Point Health Finley Hospital for treatment of his injuries, according to Dubuque police. Police said Monica Gopal's vehicle was traveling east on University Avenue, approaching the intersection of West 9th and Bluff Streets at 3.46 p.m. when her vehicle ran a red light and struck Hughes's vehicle, which was traveling south on Bluff. Monica Gopal was cited with failure to respond to a steady red signal. Telegraph Herald Top 10 Most Read Stories of the Week an article about a rock band scheduled to play 
at the Delaware County Fair was the most read story of the past week on telegraphherald.com. Here are the 10 most read stories on the website from January 30th to Sunday. 1. Legendary rock band to headline Delaware County Fair. 2. Police. Man with gun robbed woman in Dubuque. 3. Dubuque police seek to ID man as they search for two missing teens. 4. Family, Miracle Baby, who went 18 minutes without a heartbeat, returned to thank Dubuque, fam- Dubuque Hospital staff. 5. Authorities, Dubuque County man seriously hurt in snowmobile crash. 6. HTLF officially moves headquarters to Denver, but strong presence will remain in Dubuque. 7. Bizbuzz, barbershop opens in Dubuque. Fitness studio with new owner recording studio marks. One year. Eight, love that lasts. Debut couple grows together through 50 years of marriage. Nine, two teens reported missing in Dubuque, found in southwest Wisconsin. And ten, East Dubuque man sentenced to five years in prison, used knife in domestic assault. Driver injured during crash into parked vehicle. Police said one person was hurt Saturday when a vehicle struck a parked vehicle in Dubuque. Mixon Levi, 38, of Dubuque, was transported to by ambulance to Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center for treatment of his injuries, according to the Dubuque police. Police said Levi was traveling west in the 1000 block of West Locust Street at 9.09 p.m. when the vehicle left the left lane of traffic and struck the rear of a parked vehicle. The report does not indicate that any traffic citations were issued. And police, the Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Departments reported. Andrea S. McReynolds, 41, of 2146 Broadlawn Road, was arrested at 1.42 a.m. Sunday in the 300 block of Bell Street on charges of assault with injury and public intoxication. James A. Carr, 18, of Lamont, Iowa, was arrested at 11.58 p.m. Saturday at Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on a warrant charging second-degree burglary and fifth-degree criminal mischief. Turning to the Tri-State page, Maquoketa Valley Educator Wins Active Learning Award by Mike Putz, Dateline, Manchester, Iowa. A Maquoketa Valley preschool teacher who has as much fun in her classroom as her students has been named a 2023 Robert E. Yeager Active Learning Award winner. Brittany Ludovici teaches at Earlville Elementary and is one of five recipients from across the state. A letter from the Iowa Children's Museum said Ludovici was chosen for her outstanding dedication to providing students with opportunities to become engaged learners, dynamic thinkers, and creative problem solvers. Now, in her ninth year of teaching and her fourth year of teaching preschool, Ludovici said, I absolutely love this age group. My degree is in early childhood education, so my heart belongs to the young kiddos. It's just such a fun time period for them to help them develop and to become lifelong learners. Ludovici said her classroom uses hands-on learning. The kids absolutely love learning through Play-Doh. We build letters and numbers with Play-Doh using manipulatives for their learning. At this age group, 
They would have no interest in a worksheet. They preferred to build something, to manipulate anything with their hands. Ludovici has the philosophy that children at that age learn best through play. There is research that shows that. We have centers, and center time is playtime. Preschool is a time of social and emotional development, which is key to later academic success. So having that playtime with peers is where you build that time with manipulatives, games, and activities. Ludovici also plans weekly thematic teaching units embedding learning skills through activities. A recent unit allowed students to learn about penguins. She was nominated by three colleagues, including Kim Rubner, in the letter from the Iowa Children's Museum, Rubner wrote that Mrs. Ludovici is a very hands-on teacher. She makes everything a teachable moment and wholeheartedly believes in learning through play. Brittany is incredibly patient and allows every student, regardless of learning abilities, to experience a wide range of learning modalities. Ludovici will be presented her award at a gala at the Hyatt Regency in Coralville Friday, March 3rd. In addition, she receives a field trip to the museum for her students. Free passes to the museum for her students, a $100 gift card for her classroom, and 15 family admission passes to the museum for the school. It was a heartwarming experience, she said, of winning the award. Just the belief other educators have in me really touched my heart. I'm thankful for it and thankful for the people who nominated me. You are listening to a reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Monday, February 6th, 2023 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Well, I spoke too soon. There are no obituaries this morning. So we'll turn directly to the sports page. At the top of the page, the headline is Clark's Triple-Double Leads Number 6 Iowa Over Penn State by Travis Johnson. Dateline, State College, Pennsylvania. Lisa Bluter loves pretty basketball, and Iowa's coach got her fill of highlights on Sunday. The number 6 Hawkeyes, decked out in pink uniforms with white lettering, transitioned with ease, deftly set each other up for basket after basket and made stop after stop to route Penn State 95-51 to on Sunday. Hawkeye star Caitlin Clark was at the center of Iowa's eighth straight win. The junior had 23 points, 14 assists, and 10 rebounds for her ninth career triple-double. There were some beautiful passes, Bluter said. I love it when we pass the ball so well and we transition so well, and we did a lot of that today. Enough that the result wasn't in doubt after one quarter. Clark scored 11 of her points in the first half, while Penn State's best shooters went cold early. Tania Thompson led Penn State with 11 points, while Leilani Kapanis had 10. But Kapanis, McKenna Marissa, and Shay Suzuki all averaged in double figures for Penn State this season, combined to ju- go just 2 for 15 from the floor in the first quarter when Iowa took control. The two teams, both clad in pink and white uniforms for breast cancer awareness, traded baskets until Iowa took the lead for good. As Penn State's shooters 
clang, clanked misses off the rim, the Hawkeyes heated up and used a 12-2 run over the final 6 minutes and 27 seconds of the first quarter to pull ahead 19-9. Clark chipped in 6 points during that run, then fueled her teammates with sharp passes over her head and behind her back in the second. Iowa's leading scorer set up six buckets and drained a three-pointer off a fast break to help the Hawkeyes take a 45-22 to 22 lead in halftime, into halftime. She's at the top of everyone's scouting report, Marissa said. She makes the right read, she rebounds, she kind of does it all, and I have a lot of respect for her. Monica Senzano scored 14 points and Kate Martin's added 11 for the Hawkeyes, who controlled the paint and poured the on points in a lopsided second half. Clark's three-pointer put Iowa up by 23, a lead it would extend by as many as 49 in the second half. Iowa outclassed Penn State inside all afternoon. The Hawkeyes score, outscored the Lady Lions 58-18 to in the paint and out-rebounded them 51-24 to with 43 coming on the defensive glass. No Hawkeye was better in the paint than Cinzano, who buried pinpoint feeds from Clark all game. Many of them came off fast breaks, too. When you have 28 assists on 39 baskets, that's pretty special, Pluter said. Clark has hit double figures in an NCAA best 75 straight games and in all but one game ever. That was back on January 9, 2021, when she played 32 minutes against Northwestern and was held to just 8 points in a 77-67 to loss. Bluter called her a generational player afterward. Penn State coach Carolyn Keeger agreed. Caitlin Clark is a once-in-a-generation player, Keeger said. I've watched her since she was probably in 6th grade, and every time you see her play, it seems like she gets better and better. Turning to the United States Hockey League, we have the title A Quick About Face by Jim Leitner. It didn't take long for the Dubuque Fighting Saints to hit the reset button after a rough start to a three-game weekend. In a span of 27 hours, the Saints helped goaltender Marcus Brandman earn back-to-back 3-0 shutouts in a home-and-home series with the Green Bay Gamblers, who entered the weekend in second place in the USHL's Eastern Conference. The sweep took the sting out of a lackluster 7-3 and home loss to Waterloo, the second-place team in the Western Conference, on Thursday night. We just got back to playing our game, being aggressive, trying to shut down their opportunities as quickly as possible, and playing in their zone as much as we could, defenseman Will Staring, who began the season with Green Bay, said Saturday night after returning to his old stomping grounds. At this point, it's fun to beat them because they're my former team. But, to be honest, it's fun to win games in general, no matter the opponent. We took care of our business and shut out a team that's pretty good. It definitely helped our place in the standings, and now we're hoping to keep the ball rolling. The Saints, 19-13-3-1, moved into fifth place in the Eastern Conference and pulled within two points of both Green Bay and Youngstown, who sit in third and fourth. Dubuque owns a 7-1-2 and two record in its last 10. Green Bay had the advantage of being the fresher team in both games this weekend. 
We talked about how good teams find a way to win those last games in a three and three, even when you're gassed and you're playing on the road in a hostile environment, State Saints coach Kirk McDonald said of a Rush Center crowd of 6,317. The place was packed, but we outworked them and we competed our rear ends off. It's a natural to come out a little sleepy in the third game in a weekend, but we dictated the pace from the start. Marcus was great, but to a man, we did a great job in front of him. We kept everything to the outside, let him see all the shots, and didn't give up the second-chance opportunities. He just had to make the first save. Brandman, who shares the USHL lead of four shutouts with Youngstown's Jacob Fowler, stopped all 21 shots he faced Saturday night after making 27 saves on Friday night. He has not allowed a goal in 124 minutes, 43 seconds of game time. The guys were awesome Saturday night, just like Friday night, Brandman said, who did not play the third period Thursday after allowing six goals in 40 minutes. I feel like we, as a team, had a huge bounce back in Friday's game, and we kept it going in Saturday's game. As a team, we came together on Friday and said, let's forget the Waterloo game and take out our revenge on Friday. It's hard to bounce back like we did, but we played very well these last two games and showed the other teams who we really are. Brandman's toughest save on Saturday came with 10 minutes and 20 seconds remaining in the third period. Matt DiMarisco jumped on a loose puck for a short breakaway, but Brandman calmly deflected the shot to safety. Prolonged pressure from the Dubuque line of Max Montes, Noah Powell, Nils Juntorp, and the defense tandem of Jaden Jubinville and Max Buckholder yielded the first goal of the game at 5 minutes and 55 seconds of the second period. All five Saints touched the puck in the Green Bay zone during a 25-second stretch of pressure before Powell's attempted cross-crease pass hit the stick of Gambler's defenseman Carter Rose and trickled just over the goal line behind goalie Christopher Eberly. Powell picked up his sixth goal of the season on a pass intended for Montes below the left face-off circle. We had really good puck movement and continuous pressure because we were communicating really well as a line and as a group, Powell said. That's what led to the chances we were able to create and the production that got us the win tonight. We were making plays and getting pucks to the net. We got a lucky bounce on my goal, but like my teammates said, they don't ask how, they ask how many. James James Reeder doubled the lead on his ninth goal of the season with just one minute and 43 seconds remaining in the second period. Burkholder won a battle in the Dubuque zone, and Jake Sandrial made a slick bounce pass off the right wing wall to spring Reeder. The right-handed shooting rookie had a step on defender Ardiam Leshuvnov and drove the rest drove the net and backhanded a shot under Eberly to make it two to zero. Sandy made a great pass off the wall, and I just had to take it to the net, Reader said. It felt good to help the team out and give us a two goal lead going into the third period, especially with it being the third game in a three and three. We came ready to play tonight. Obviously, Friday night we got a huge win, and we got the energy from that game into this game. Green Bay has a really good team, so to shut them out in back-to-back 
Knights is huge. Ryan St. Louis continued his recent goal-scoring surge at 6 minutes and 21 seconds of the third period to stretch the lead to 3-0. and Mikey Burchill moved the puck to Theo Wahlberg at the right point, and the defenseman fired a shot on goal. St. Louis gathered the blocked shot and backhanded it over Eberle's left shoulder for his 17th goal of the season. St. Louis has goals in three straight games and seven of the last nine contests. Just 19 seconds later, former Saints forward Peter Kramer delivered a high hit to Powell along the right wing wall. Powell, who turned 18 on Thursday, took exception and dropped the gloves with the 20-year-old. Powell muscled Kramer to the ice after delivering a couple of blows, and both were assessed fighting majors and misconducts ending their nights. In college basketball, Northwestern 54, Wisconsin 52. Cat sweep Wisconsin. Dateline Madison. Boo Booey scored 13 points. Brooks Barnheiser had a clutch blocked shot in the final minute, and Northwestern defeated Wisconsin 54-52 to on Sunday night. The Wildcats swept the season series with Wisconsin for the first time since the 1995-96 season. Wisconsin scored seven consecutive points and took a 49-48 to lead on a jumper by Chucky Hepburn with three minutes and 21 seconds to go. Chase Audage put the Wildcats back on top 50-49 to with two minutes and 55 seconds remaining, and there would be only one more made basket the rest of the game. After a series of turnovers, missed jumpers, and missed free throws, Hepburn hit a jumper to give the Badgers a 51-50 to lead with 45 seconds remaining. Buey then hit two free throws to put Northwestern back on top 52-51 to at 31 seconds. Barnheiser blocked a layup attempt by Hepburn with 20 seconds left, and the Wildcats held on to win despite a missed one-and-one opportunity by Titus Verhoeven. Hepburn's missed jumper with six seconds left was Wisconsin's final chance to take the lead. Hepburn scored 17 points for Wisconsin, and Connor Asijian added 15 points, all on 5 of 11 three-point shooting. Audage added 11 points, 7 rebounds, and 3 assists for Northwestern. Barnheiser had 8 points, 7 rebounds, and 1 big block. Northwestern led 20-13 to after Nick Martinelli hit a jumper with 8 minutes and 39 seconds left in the first half. Wisconsin closed to within 22-21 to with an 8-2 run highlighted by Asijian's 3-pointer. The Wildcats went on to lead 26-23 at the half. Turning to the Tri-State page, two women fined for a role in fight in which three slashed. Two Dubuque women recently were ordered to pay a $105 fine each in relation to their role in a large fight in Dubuque. Cartesia L. Carpenter, 26, and Catrice S. Carpenter, 31, were fined in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to one count each of disorderly conduct. The Carpenters initially were charged with participation in a riot, but pleaded to the lesser included charge. They were among six people arrested in connection with the May 15th disturbance that originated at the restaurant First in Maine at 101 Main Street. Davenport, Iowa residents Michael L.S. Hall, 
and Jekiah M. Pugh, 21, as well as Dubuque residents Cyan C. Dominguez, 21, and Jashana J. Vaughn, 20, also were arrested on a charge of participation in a riot in connection with the incident. Dominguez pleaded guilty to assault and was sentenced to 60 days in jail. Hall pleaded guilty to assault and was sentenced to two years of probation. The other two women have pleaded not guilty. Court documents state that a fight inside First in Maine spilled out onto the street, and the carpenters and Vaughn were cut by a woman wielding a knife. Traffic and surveillance video showed Catrice Carpenter and Vaughn exit the restaurant and immediately start fighting Dominguez, Hall, and Pugh. Authorities have said investigators believe one of the six women did the slashing, but a lack of cooperation, including from the slashing victims, resulted in a lack of evidence to charge anything beyond participation in a riot. However, court documents show that in January, the trial information for Pew was updated to include two counts of assault causing serious injury. Documents state that Pew assaulted Kalia Wharton, with no age or hometown listed, without the intent to inflict serious injury, but causing seriously bodily injury to her. However, Warden was not listed in any other court documents related to the fight. Pugh has pleaded not guilty to the additional charges. When asked about the new charges, Dubuque Police Department Lieutenant Brendan Welsh said police records only show the charge of participation in a riot against Pugh. Contacted for clarification on the new charges, County Attorney Scott Nelson said in an email that, quote, We do not discuss pending inv- investigations and specifics of open cases, unquote, and additional charges would not be added without evidentiary support. The next story is Dubuque Museum's Owl Doesn't Give a Hoot by Eric Hogstrom. Expect Cece to do a lot of things. Rest during the day, fly around at night, and feast on a mouse or two. Just don't expect Cece to hoot. Don't expect the National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium's resident barn owl to sound like members of her species from other parts of the world either. Have you ever met someone from New York and they sound a bit different? Birds have that too, said Jennifer Drena, the Dubuque Museum's Curator of Education. One of my favorite things about barn owls is that if you are really good at birding by ear, you can actually tell a European barn owl call from an American barn owl call and from a South American one. They actually have accents depending on what population they are from. Just don't expect to hear a hoot. When Cece calls, it sounds more like a screech or a scratchy note, Drena said. The most common owls in Dubuque, the ones people are going to hear in their backyards, great horned owls or barred owls, those are hoot owls. The Telegraph Herald regularly is providing a closer look at animals at the museum. This week's profile takes a look at an uncommon resident of Iowa. The museum received Cece the barn owl in 2020, the same year she hatched. We got her because the barn owl is considered an endangered species within the state of Iowa, Drina said. The owls have been listed on the Iowa Endangered Species List since 1977, according to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. 
Drainus said loss of habitat has depressed the numbers of the bird's rodent prey, which in turn has lessened the number of barn owls in the state. Barn owls are huge rodent eaters, she said. One barn owl eats three mice a night, a thousand mice a year. The owls like edge habitat, where there are lots of tall grasses, and they raise their families in old woodpecker holes. Like other owls, barn owls rely on silent flight to aid in hunting. Their feathers are designed to not make noise, Drana said. Owls' eyesight is fantastic, but we believe they see in grayscale. They are more reliant on their hearing than their eyesight to hunt. The barn owl is able to catch a mouse that is burrowed under six inches of snow. It never has to see it. They can locate the mouse by using their ears. Drana said a misconception about owls is that they are blind during the day. They can see just as well during the day as they can during the night, she said. We observe them during the day. That's when they're relaxing, recovering from their night. They are most active at twilight or in the middle of the night. Cece is an ambassador animal at the museum, specially trained to participate in educational programs. Our training style is positive reinforcement, and we have gotten Cece to the point where she feels comfortable going to schools and coming out to do educational programs, Drana said. Earlier this year, Cece went to Cedar Rapids with me to teach a high school group about birds. Turning to the lifestyle page and health uh, articles, the title of this one is Eating Grapes Might Protect You Against Sunburn or Skin Cancer by Nancy Clanton. When you're packing for the pool or beach this summer, don't forget your towel, your sunscreen, and your grapes. Why grapes? According to a recent study, eating grapes can protect you against ultraviolet skin damage. More than 3 million Americans are affected by skin cancer each year, the study's authors wrote, largely as a result of sunlight exposure. For their study, the researchers gave the 29 volunteers daily doses of whole grape powder, equivalent to two and a quarter cups of the fruit. This, condition, this continued for two weeks. During this time period, the study participants' skin was exposed to UV light. Scientists also analyzed the volunteers' gut microbiome, blood, and urine. Nearly a third of the 29 persistent participants, nine people, showed UV resistance after eating grapes. The same three urinary metabolites, one that is a strong indicator of reduced photo damage, Science Tech Daily wrote, were depressed in each person with UV resistance. Three of those nine people maintained their UV resistance a month after they stopped eating the grape powder. We conclude that a segment of the population is capable of demonstrating greater resistance to a dermal response elicited by UV irradiation as a result of grape consumption, the researchers wrote. It is uncertain if modulation of the gut-skin axis leads to enhanced UV resistance, but there is correlation. And the next story is from the Mayo Clinic Minute, Breaking Down Different Types of Blood Donations, by Dee Dee Stepen. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs blood, according to the American Red Cross. Becoming a donor is easy and can make a significant impact on your community. In this Mayo Clinic Minute, Dr. Justin Jeskowicz, 
Associate Medical Director of the Blood Donor Center at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, breaks down the different types of blood donations and how they help patients in need. Blood contains several components, red cells, platelets, and plasma, that can offer different benefits to patients in need. The most common type of donation is a whole blood donation. We insert a needle in your arm and you fill up a bag that potentially could go up to three different recipients, depending on how we manufacture that blood product, Jeskowitz said. For the red blood cell part of a whole blood donation, type O is considered the universal donor because those red blood cells can go to anyone, regardless of blood type. On the flip side, though, if you're donating plasma, the yellow liquid component, it's actually the ABs who are the universal plasma donors, he says. During plasma and platelet donations, donors are hooked up to a machine that separates blood components and returns unused components to the donor. Our plasma line, we collect three units at a time, so potentially that could go to three different patients, says Jeskowicz. Plasma is commonly given to people in emergency and trauma situations to help stop bleeding. In a platelet donation, the only cells collected are those that help with clotting. Platelets are commonly given to people with cancer or someone having major surgery. We can collect up to two units at a time per donation, so that could go to two people, Jeskowicz says. Donating blood products doesn't just benefit patients in need. It also benefits those who give, he adds. This is the opportunity in which they can literally save someone's life. This is the one part of medicine in which nearly everyone in the community can be part of someone's medical care. And the last story is titled Radon, the Odorless Invisible Threat by Mayo Clinic News Network. Radon is an odorless, invisible radioactive gas. It's naturally released from rocks, soil, and water, and it can get trapped inside your home, office, or school. There's no known safe level of radon. Unfortunately, there are no symptoms of radon exposure, as there are with carbon monoxide poisoning. poisoning. Breathing high levels over time can lead to lung cancer. In fact, radon is a Class A carcinogen. It's the number one cause of lung cancer in non-smokers and the second leading cause of lung cancer overall. Nationwide, 21,000 people die from radon-caused lung cancer each year. Smoking and secondhand smoke combined with exposure to high radon levels increase your risk of lung cancer. If you or your family are experiencing breathing issues, consult with a pulmonologist. Radon can be found in any home, old or new, and typically enters through cracks in the foundation caused by natural settling and windows. Radon levels often are higher in lower levels and basements. Across the U.S., 1 in 15 homes have elevated radon levels, and levels are higher in the Midwest. For Minnesota homes, the average radon level is about 4.5 picocuries per liter of air, compared to 1.3 nationwide. And that does it for today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Monday, February 6th, 2023. I'm your reader, Katherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening.